Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Here we go, yet another episode of Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. Thanks so much for being here. And we seem to be in a stretch of interview segments. I've had the chance over the last couple of weeks of talking to some very interesting people, including this week's guest, actually this week and next, Chip Zine is with me. Now, Chip is a very successful actor, singer. You may not know the name, but you have seen him many times, and you've also probably heard him. He has been in 13 different Broadway productions, including Into the Woods. He has also been involved in over 65 television shows, and among them, he was one of the stars of Almost Perfect, which was the show that I was involved with, with David Isaacs and Robin Schiff, all too briefly on CBS in the mid-90s. He's a great storyteller, Chip Zion, and in this episode, we'll talk a little bit about Almost Perfect, how he got the job, also how he broke into the business, which is uh, a very interesting, unusual way. And we're going to spend some time talking about Into the Woods and working with Stephen Sondheim. So if you ever wondered what it was like to be part of a huge hit Broadway musical from day one, this is the episode for you. Okay, part one coming up now, Chip Sign this week on Hollywood and Levine. Okay, so first, Chip, I want to start by telling a story that you probably haven't heard and this is the other side of you getting hired on Almost Perfect. Yes. And it's interesting because we are recording this on Good Friday. And the episode I'm about to tell you about happened on Good Friday. <laughs> so this is like 1995, and this is the Nancy Travis show. And we're casting it, and you were in New York, and you sent us a tape, and we loved the tape. We said, that's the guy. And our casting director said, well, mm, he's not available. He's in a pilot for CBS. Well, shit. So now we're seeing guy after guy after guy, and we're going, it's not as good. <laughs> it's not as good as that guy. That's the guy. So we ended up hiring somebody. And so we're going to go into production. And the way we would do it was the Thursday before... Good Friday, we'd have the table reading. Then we would be down for Good Friday. And then we would start up Monday, go Monday through Friday. So we had the table reading on Thursday, and the guy playing your part just wasn't as good. And we said, okay, let's scramble and, and find somebody else. And our casting director comes in and says, hey, good news. Apparently, 
Chip was just a guest star on this pilot, that they rolled the dice, that no one was going to hire him in two weeks, you know, for a series regular, and so we don't have to pay him that kind of money, and so he's available. <laughs> okay, so I called you. I think you were about to have your Passover Seder or something, because, you know, do you want to come out to L.A.? Do you want to do this? Yeah. And you said yes. So we then went to uh, the president of Paramount, and we showed him your tape, and he said, great, okay, so you're approved by Paramount. Now it's Good Friday, and I call CBS, and I say, we're replacing this actor with Chip Zion, and we got to make the deal and get him out here from New York. And I get a call from the casting person at CBS saying, okay, I want to see these four actors in my office at noon. And I said, wait, no, I'm not seeing any. It's my show, and this is the guy I want. So that's the deal. So then the president calls me, Peter Tortorici, and goes, well, we just want to see some other people, some other options. And we said, no, (laughs) this is our guy. We've seen 100 people. We got to get on a plane, and this is our guy. And he goes, well, I don't know, and there's a couple of other people. And we said, no, this is the guy. <laughs> and so he goes like, uh, okay, fine, you can, you can have the guy. So we make the deal. Obviously, we don't tell you any of this. We make yeah. the deal. You fly out, and then the next Wednesday is the network run-through. And Peter Tortorici is there. And after your first scene, he calls me and my partners, David and Robin, off to the side. And we're like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. And he goes, thank you. He says, that guy is spectacular. That guy is fantastic. How did you find that guy? We didn't see that. That guy is fantastic. So... I, I, this is making me so nervous. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's not nerve wracking enough to get these jobs, right? It's. I think I had auditioned for a big uh, wave Dave. Big wave big Dave's. Wave Dave. Yeah, big wave Dave's. So I was really aware of you guys. Like I, I was really upset I didn't get to be in that. And it's kind of why uh, uh, when I auditioned in New York. I said, well, I'm kind of involved. And like, you know, it's like last night I got called in the after. It was rushed. Right. So right. Like I only had like a couple hours really. It, it happened really quickly. And I remember that I only had a couple hours to prepare, which always makes me nervous because I'm inclined that way. And then I went and I auditioned, but it was because I, I knew your name. I knew the names. And I thought like, you know, oh, my God, the auditions right almost at the dinner hour. You know, it's like it's 430 and it's all the way downtown, five o'clock. It's getting close to dinner. Listen, turned out to be one of the great experiences of my life. I, you know, and, and, you know, my my story about Tortorici is that uh, Tortorici is that they had the upfronts for the um, after our first season. Mm-hmm. We went out very late with Tortorici. We were sitting there drinking with him. It was really late in the morning. I, I remember that I. Uh, you know, got home about 2 a.m. or whatever it was. And I loved Tortorici. He was really nice to me. And we were happened to be sitting next to each other at the bar at the park. Uh, what's the hotel on Park Avenue? Can't think of the name. I'm blanking. But he said, Chip, you know, 
our second season is going to be unbelievable. And, you know, we so appreciate that this is so successful and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I went home and I woke my wife up and I said, like, oh, my God, we're all set. We got to go buy a car. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and I the next morning I woke up to walk the dog and I got the New York Post and the TV section in the Post used to be on the back page. And the back page headline when I went to pick up the Post and walk the dog was Tortorici out, less moon vest in. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, I realized that I, I thought, well, our stock dropped a little bit after that happened because Tortorici. Yeah, we were just inherited. Yeah. yeah, he was he championed our show. And then the next regime wasn't uh, wasn't as interesting. By the way, I had started out acting with Les Moonves. I had, you know, did we, we were pals auditioning for commercials in New York City in the early 70s. And, you know, one day I ended up at Lorimar and I look at the board behind me with all the execs names. And he was like the head of something. It, well, so, uh, so glad. So glad to have you. Yeah. You know, it was so uh, good of you not to let me know about that during our pilot. Well, of course not. Pilot. Yeah. Because of course like, not. as if I wasn't nervous enough. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. Actors like, you know, it's it's so hard to show up and have like it. You have to have instant relationships and get to know everybody in the cast and then the producers and the writers. And it's like uh, it's a very quick version of going to summer camp but where you've got to get to know everybody immediately and, and get along as best you can. Let's go back a little bit. So you're originally oh. from Milwaukee. Yeah. And you've been on Broadway. You've been in movies, television, commercials, voiceover. What did yeah. you originally want to do, and how did you get there? Uh, originally, I wanted to be a lawyer. And uh, <laughs> you took the bad route and go, and go into <laughs> business with my uh, work in my uncle's law firm in, in Kansas City. But I had acted as a kid because I was a boy soprano and I my mom would always make me sing at parties at family events. So I, I, I had an interest. I was a boy soprano, which always kind of embarrassed me. So I would basically start to cry, but I would sing. I would sing anyway. So I had, as a kid, I was like a kid actor as much as you could be in Milwaukee, you know. Uh, right. And at some point I was in the, the, when Summerstock shows came in, like South Pacific or something, to play the Summerstock Theater at the time called Melody Circus in Milwaukee, I would be the kid. So like in South Pacific, I played, uh, I was typecast as a young Polynesian boy. And singing, perfect, perfect casting. Where I, and I sang "Detem Pourquoi," this uh, little song in South Pacific. That's very cute, and I love you know I loved it. But as I went through school, uh, the acting kind of embarrassed me to a certain extent. I really wanted to play tennis, and and uh, I, I was sort of you know if I had to be in a Christmas pageant and I was like the solo boy soprano singer, I had problems uh, saying uh, the word which frequently appears in in Christmas uh, songs, uh, the word Jesus, I was un- incapable of saying without choking because I was not a member of that lodge hall. And I thought I was not supposed to even say, say that. So every time I would have to sing these solos, I had this horrible fright where I would sit, where I would choke when every time I came across that name. Anyway, in college, I end up, I'm like the first Jewish president of the mask and wig club, which is this old, 
tradition-bound, all-male organization, and and then I applied to law schools. But then the Vietnam War interceded, uh, and you couldn't be deferred for law school. So I ended up teaching sixth grade. Did you know that? Did you know? No, I did I, not. I taught school for a year, a, a classroom of thirty kids, uh-huh. and um, I was horrible, a Mister Zion, as they called me. <laughs> <laughs> and then after I taught school for a year, my sister—I had a stepsister who was running a theater in West Dundee, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago—and uh, somebody got sick, and because I, my stepsister w- was. At that point, my stepsister, but I had also grown up with her in school. I knew her really well, and she knew that I could sing. And And she said, you know, we could use you here. You can come down here and play all the leads. So I went to West Dundee, Illinois, and played all the leads. And then we came back on a Sunday. It was a group of, like, maybe eight actors and a little staff. And I came back one Sunday night when we were off, and we came back after seeing a movie. The theater had burned to the ground. <laughs> it was called the Chateau, uh, the Chateau Louise in West Dundee, Illinois. Burned to the ground. We lived there. You know, it was like a resident repertory dinner theater. Right. And some of us got in a car that went, we thought, well, what do we do now? It was literally standing in the parking lot. There were two cars between us. One car was going to New York and one car was going to California. And I got in the car that went to New York. And that's how I became an actor. Wow. Yeah. Now, you know, you bounced around, you, you did a number of things, and you found yourself in Falsettos, yeah. which was a project that was developed and redeveloped and became a big hit. Talk about Falsettos. Yeah, well, well, so, okay, so now I was really lucky when I got to New York because I got work right away, which was, that made me a little cockier than I probably should have been at the time. But I, I, um, I got into a production of Your Good Man, Charlie Brown, and, I, you know, I was meeting, there was a height requirement. The guys had to be under 5'6", and the women had to be under 5'4". And the whole thing struck me as being fantastic. Like show business, I didn't realize it's like some kind of private party for me, you know, and I loved it. <laughs> so that was like in 72 or 3. It, for some reason, in 1978, I was having a terrible, terrible year. I couldn't get arrested. I couldn't get a job. And I decided to shake things up and go to California. And when I got to the airport at the desk, there was a message waiting for me. This, this predated cell phones. There was a message that said that I was to call my agent, that they needed to talk to me before I got on the plane. And uh, so I called my agents and they said, there's this really weird new musical composer, William Finn, and he wants to see you for a show called In Trousers, which was the precursor of all of the falsetto shows. Okay. Kind of part of the falsetto, uh, you know, oeuvre. Mm-hmm. So, so um, I, I did. I turned around. And I went back home and I listened to what was a, you know on cassette tape to the score of In Trousers. Got the part, and so suddenly I was back in New York, and I would then work for Bill Finn for the next basically five years because it went through the show In Trousers, and then we did workshops for March of the Falsettos, and then March of the Falsettos ran. And then we started working on a sequel to March of the Falsettos. And through that connection, eventually James Lapine, the director, big director in New York, eventually came in to work on the Falsettos. And then Lapine, James, started writing with Stephen Sondheim. So William Finn took me to Lapine, who took me to Sondheim. And, uh, you know, there was just a great decade of uh, unbelievable 
good luck and a wonderful show. Well, and also talent. Uh, you know, you you were in Into the Woods. Yeah. You were the baker. Yeah. Now, you need chops to sing Sondheim. <laughs> I mean, it's not just, yeah, I got a guy, he, he's a good friend of mine, you know, he can carry a tune. You You really need chops especially that score what yeah. was it like working with him because you were there from the beginning so yeah was Sondheim around what happened was we had I started working with with uh, Sondheim with Steve my close friend Steve I started working with Steve with Sondheim it uh on Merrily We Roll Along which ended up the, in La Jolla and it was supposed to come back to Broadway this this was going to be the first reworking of what had previously flopped on Broadway, a show right. called Mer- Merrily Roll Along. Yeah, there's a great documentary about that, by the way. Yes, it's great. Lonnie mm-hmm. Price, this, this beautiful documentary that if you have a chance to see it, you should. So after after we finished Merrily We Roll Along in La Jolla, we thought we were going to take that back to Broadway. And um, we, we had a producer, everything was supposedly all set. But what happened, I, I Lapine invited me to a summer home uh, after we had come back to New York to, for to spend a day in the country. And I got out of the car and Lapine said to me, he said, did you talk to your agent about uh, Merrily? I said, no, when, when, are we, when are we starting? He said, no, no. He said, I've dropped out of the project. <laughs> and uh, so, <laughs> so it's not going to happen. The pro- it's gone. It's, it's gone. I said, well, well, you're kidding. He said, I'm working on a new show. Basically, I thought, oh, good, we're going to spend the entire day grilling swordfish. And, right. uh, and I'm going to have to live <laughs> with the fact that the, the best role I had ever been given up to that point is just because because James doesn't feel like doing it because he's not getting along with with the original book writer, which was George Firth. And um, so he said, no, no, you know, don't worry about it. He said, I've been writing this new thing. I'll, I'll show it to you. I've got it on, it's up on the computer. This was in the era of K-Pros. And I, was, I don't know if the listeners are, <laughs> are old enough to know that the K-Pro was thought of as the first portable computer. It had like a four-inch black and white screen. Mm-hmm. And, and James Lapine had a K-Pro. And he said, look at this. I'm writing a show called Into the Woods. And uh, he said, I'll show you the first scene. He said, you'll, you'll be in this one. And uh, it was about like bugs and dwarves and little people running around in the forest while it was snowing. Uh-huh. And I said to him at the time, I said, like, what are you doing? You're writing about little tiny cartoon animals running around in the woods. And we have Merrily. And he said, no, we're not doing Merrily. It's gone. So that my first exposure to Into the Woods was up there. And then uh, it went in, eventually went into workshops not too soon, after, not too long after that, where I was cast as Cinderella's Prince which I thought was fantastic. I was going to be this wonderfully handsome, tall, dashing prince, Cinderella's prince. And when we did the reading of it, uh, the Playwrights Horizons, I killed. I got huge laughs. And I thought like, oh, I I totally aced this. This is so cool. And uh, Lapine came up to me and he said, what are you doing? What are you doing? (laughs) I said, what do you mean? What was I doing? I just killed. I killed. I was fantastic. He said, uh, what do you think this is? Like some kind of Monty Python sketch? What are you doing? You're told you were totally wrong. You you like, you know, ruined the whole thing. Okay, now jump cut ahead. Um, uh, wh- where was I? I was out in L.A. I end up somehow in L.A. 
And they're casting Into the Woods, which I had done playing Cinderella's Prince. And I thought, well, I guess that's never going to, I'm never going to get to do that ever again. And uh, I get a call from Lapine saying, um, it, what do you think about playing the role of the baker? And I said, I think that would be pretty great. I think that would be really a good idea. Mm-hmm. And he said, the thing is, can we, can you fly back and, and so we can see you read it? And uh, we just want to hear you say the lines and stuff. And I said, yeah, well, sure. I mean, let me, I guess, let me think about it. And I hung up and the next call I got was from uh, the casting director of Into the Woods who said, do not fly back here. Tell them you're busy. You cannot make it back. He said, because if you come back here, he said, they can't cast anybody. You're at the moment their last, the last hope. They have no idea what they want. <laughs> he, said, he said, they wanted Tom Hulse. They can't get Tom Hulse. You know, he said, don't just tell them you're busy. And I, I was shooting, I was shooting a disastrous TV series at the time called Shell Game, which was dead last in the ratings, by the way, uh, starring Margot Kidder. But at, at any rate, uh, uh, so... Um, I, I said, well, I don't want to lose that part. He said, no, don't, don't fly back. He said, call the pine back and say, you know what? Your schedule will just not allow you to come back, but you really, really want to do it, which I did holding my breath. And, um, and then, uh, I got called back that they, you know, they're just going to go ahead and hire me and see what happens. Sounds like the, uh, sounds like the almost perfect story. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> just different characters, different so, characters, but same yeah, result. You were same terrific. result. So I, so I, I basically, I lied my way into, into the woods, which is all about integrity and sort of moral responsibility, but I lied my way into it. And, uh, the rest is history. I got, I got to play this in fantastic role and, um, Really, always exciting and unbelievable to watch Sondheim and 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 James is such a close friend of mine to this day. Um, although he does say that Chip, when you get he has a, a thing that if I'm getting uh, disappointed in rehearsals or maybe a bit cranky, uh-huh. he always says, "Can we, Chip needs some food? Can we find somebody to get Chip a sandwich?" And uh, <laughs> he, he never he doesn't really take me that seriously and thinks that I'm. It's always just because I'm hungry. That, I, that we're having a problem. <laughs> anyway, yes. Yeah, so there, there I was in in this amazing experience with my partner Joanna Gleason, who I loved, and and uh, and James and Steve. And one day, um, I mean, it's an unbelievable experience. How much time do we have? Oh, we have all the time in the world. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, we have all the time in the world. So now I'm in a position where, like, Sondheim is writing music for me, like in my key. I, I happened to sing in the key of D flat and we would go to his house and he, he would, uh, you know, play things. And how does this sound? Just sing this line. And I'm in his house, which also happens to be right next to Catherine Hepburn's house. Do you, do, 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 do we, so <laughs> there's an issue there. I have not, I've not been invited to either. Okay. So I, I'm in, I'm in Sondheim's house and he's setting the keys. He said, you know who lives next door? Catherine Hepburn. He said, she's, uh, well, there's a line in Into the Woods, uh, a well-known line where where the uh, when the witch uh, knocks on the baker's door, uh, who, uh, who is it? We somebody says, "Who is it?" And the response is, "It's the witch from next door." And I think the origin of the line was how <laughs> Stephen Sondheim. I, I can't believe I'm saying this publicly, but I think it was, I think it was how he felt about his neighbor. Uh huh. 
I, I eventually had occasion to be in, in her house, in Catherine Hepburn's house, uh, in a, in a, I'm not going to name the movie because it's just, it just wasn't uh, that good. <laughs> <laughs> but I had a really big part, and I, I had to be approved by Catherine Hepburn. Who was, it was a great experience. And I went to her house, and uh, immediately she asked me if I drink scotch, which at that point in my life I did not, uh, having... I drank scotch in college, but scotch by this point, it made me so sick over the years, I couldn't drink it. But I said, yes, I absolutely, I drink scotch. It's my favorite drink. And uh, she said, and handed me the glass, and she said, this is the glass that Spence drank out of, and takes me into her backyard, which is historically preserved backyard from like 1912. It hasn't changed. All the brownstones on that block back up against this beautiful historic gardens, gorgeous and I'm standing out there and my hands shaking, holding the scotch. And she said, you know, do you know who lives next door? I said, no, I uh, no." She said, um, Stephen Sondheim. She said, he's insane. He's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I said, what do, you, what do you mean? She said, he, he plays the piano two, three o'clock in the morning. She said, like, it just echoes. I hear it all in my brownstone here. And she said, one night I climbed up this trellis. There's a huge rose trellis and, she said, I climbed up, pounded on the glass and uh, told him to stop, you know, and we don't get along. And, and then after that, I, went, I, I, I saw Sondheim and I said, she claimed she pounded on the, uh, she climbed up your rose trellis. <laughs> he said, yeah, she's just, she's, in, she's nuts. She's insane. <laughs> so anyway, I got to meet Catherine Hepburn and Sondheim, but Sondheim, and then, when he's writing songs for you, he'd come into rehearsals like you'd have scenes where, you know, the song was a TBD, you know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and he would. Um, for one in particular, a song that I loved to sing in that show, which was called No No More, hadn't been in the show when we started rehearsing. And suddenly he brought it in in my key and he folds out all of the manuscript paper on the piano and it's falling off. Him, but it's a huge, long song. And he sing, he sings it, plays it, and performs it, and um, we all basically started to cry. I was, I was there with Steve and myself, and Tom Aldrich, a wonderful actor who played my father in Into the Woods, and Paul Gemignani, who's this big bear of a guy, the music director, and everybody was crying, standing behind Sondheim, listening to him sing this song, crying. And I thought, like, wow, you and know, that's your song. This, how could this happen? How could this happen? And um, you know, he, Sondheim was a really interesting blend of a lot of things because he he was like a bridge to sort of old school Broadway, faster, funnier, George Abbott, let's keep the pace up, let's do this and that. But he was such an innovative intellectual at the same time that he pushed the art form into a completely different direction and, uh, you know, has so many imitators now of the young younger composers. Um so he he was you know I mean it it was a treat I I, I mean the, to put it mildly to to have met him and you know we 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 taped the show three nights at the end of the run all of the original cast members came back and we we filmed the show uh, for PBS and I have this ridiculous habit of um, when I would do a show on a Broadway show. I would. I, I never turned the dress, the light off in my dressing room while the show was still on, and uh, I don't. It, you know, stupid. It was some sort of superstition that I had. And after the third taping 
of Into the Woods. Those three nights had been like a rock concert. All the fans of the show had come back. I mean, it was, you know, kind of amazing and just memorable. And I came back to my dressing room and the light was off. And I thought, like, that is not possible. How could that happen? Of all nights, the light is off. That's bad. That's a bad sign. I turned the light on. Stephen Sondheim is sitting in my dressing room and he was crying. And he said, you know, it, it, it just doesn't get better than this. This is, this is as great as it can possibly be. He said, the last three nights, you know, something we'll never forget. And so, you, you know, I, I saw different sides of him because he's a taskmaster, but at the same time, really emotional and, and bridges the gap between the older Broadway and, and newer Broadway. You told me the story that when you guys were trying out in La Jolla, because the second act is so different yeah. from the first and that the first act seems like it's the end yeah. that, that people at intermission were going out to their cars and like yeah. Sondheim was like running out into the parking yeah. lot telling people, yeah. no, come back. There's more. Yeah. Steve, Steve actually went out and that's why uh, the, the last line of act one is uh, to be continued. They added a line saying to indicate that there was a second act, but the origin of it was exactly as you've just said, was that people were leaving after act one thinking, well, it was a nice show. That's it. It's over. And Sondheim raced out in the parking lot at, at uh, the old globe. That's where we tried out uh, into the woods um, in San Francisco. And Sondheim ran outside to get everybody to come back in saying, you know, there's another, there's a second act. That's true. <laughs> So when you're in a long-running show and yeah. you're doing eight performances a week, which to me sounds absolutely grueling, <laughs> are there nights when you're kind of on autopilot, when you're singing, when you're doing your thing, and you're going, oh, God, I got to get my insurance payment in tomorrow, and, uh, God, yeah. I, I, I think I better make the summer camp reservations for my kids. Are you yeah, thinking that while you're performing? Uh, you know, you don't want to, but you can't help paying your AT&T bill. Uh, sometimes I, I have been absolutely sitting there singing the most beautiful things, thinking to myself, did I did I pay my phone bill this month? Like when I get home, <laughs> is the cable still going to be on? Did I, did I pay the cable? But yeah, so it does happen. And you also become aware of like people who've been shopping that day, you know, tourists who've come into town and they're, they have the Bloomingdale's bags are still right. on the floor where they're sitting. Mm-hmm. So every time they move, the bag gets jostled and you're thinking, please do not kick that bag one more time. Okay. <laughs> and, <laughs> And I, the other things happen that are funny. I had dinner with the, I was really friendly. Uh, I was in a show called Grand Hotel and I was really friendly with the music, with the piano player and the orchestra of that show. And we would, on matinee days, we would have dinner together. And uh, this one night we're, after dinner, we're doing this show and something is going terribly wrong in the orchestra. And um, I think, like the some somebody's not playing some parts of the orchestra are playing one thing the director is yelling out what measure we're on measure 88 measure 88 and and i'm going like well i can fix this too so i start singing uh where i think we are in the music i just change what i'm singing start singing at which point the music director threw a baton at me 
uh, on stage <laughs> like a dart, like a dart comes flying, whizzing past me. But the funny part was, is that what I found out later is that my pal, the piano player up in the pit had fallen asleep playing the piano because he had had too much meatloaf uh, for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and when he startled awake, he didn't know where we were. So he started playing the wrong thing. And the piano is at the core of any orchestra. He pulled half of the orchestra with him. And that's uh, that so stuff happens, you know, I mean, it's, you know, yeah. And your mind wanders, but, but uh, to be honest, I, a lot of actors hate long runs. They just don't like them. Sure. They, you know, they limit themselves. Um, I actually don't, I actually like them. It's weird. I, I mean, I did into the woods for almost two years. Um, yeah, I did grand hotel for almost two years. Um, I just, I, I I like I like them. I don't know why. Maybe it's because you know I'm pretty sure I know my lines. And On Saturdays, when you're doing a matinee and an yeah. evening performance, yeah, do you kind of hold back a little bit for the matinee just so that you have enough energy to go the distance for the nighttime performance? You know what? I don't. Uh, I mean, I don't think I do, uh, but. The, the whole the whole thing about Broadway is all about staying healthy. I mean, it's like, you know, if you get a cold, you're, if you get just a simple cold, it makes your job almost impossible. What do you do? Yeah, well, what do you do? You know, it's, it's I was always resistant, like <clears throat> taking myself out of the show. Right. I mean, I always resisted that. Um, but there are times when you can't do it. I mean, like, you know, Bernadette Peters was said to me one night, I wasn't feeling well. Bernadette Peters was in Into the Woods. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's wonderful to be around. If if any, if you get the chance, I, I advise you to take it. <laughs> she's really fun. Uh, but she said to me, she said, you know, if, if you can be at 50%, that's kind of, you got to kind of learn how to deal with it. But I, I always did find it really difficult, and I really worried about my health. The first thing in the morning when I woke up, uh, I would check my voice. I would make strange sounds, you know, eat, 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 just to see if there was anything there. And it's a constant concern. And one, one time I said, the, the, the voice doctor that we all go to, and one of the popular, uh, you know, throat doctors in New York, and I'm sitting there with, like, uh, Joel Gray and, and Len Carey, all these guys playing leads in Broadway shows. And uh, and the doctor walked out and he said, this is so, I'm so powerful. I'm controlling who appears on Broadway tonight, <laughs> you know, and uh, and in fact, in fact, he did. So he said, you know, Chip, you can go on. You'll be OK. It'll be a struggle, but you can get through, you know, Joel, you have to stay home. Len, let's talk later in the day, see how you feel, you know, and it's it's a, it's it's really tough to remain healthy and have to keep maintain your voice. And um, your physical well-being is that's that's what Broadway is all about. And then there's understudies. And do yeah. you worry about understudies coming in and <laughs> taking your job? Well, I, I mean, different. I saw all about Eve. Yeah, I've had different understudies. Some some I some I like I, I like more than others uh, in terms of uh, of uh, some are competitive with you because that you know and they want to go out on stage and prove that. Um, that they've got it all figured out and, and you never did, even though you go on every night. And, um, but for the most part, no, we were really fond of our understudies. I mean, it's, it's a really tough job. 
Oh, yeah. And, and they get thrown out there. Uh, never enough rehearsal. Um, eventually they get, you know, depending on the length of the run, they, they, they know what they're doing, but it's, a, I, I did it. My, my broad, I made my Broadway debut understudying in a show um, called all over town directed by Dustin Hoffman. And I was the understudy and it was terrifying because at any moment you get that call, okay, Chip, you're on tonight. And, uh, you know, it just didn't feel familiar. You know, the sure. clothes don't seem right. The, it just doesn't, it's, you know, you've been watching it so much and frequently every night and you get, suddenly you're out there and the stage seems totally different. It, it's very, very alarming. And, and really some people are better at it than others. It's, 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 a, it's a skill all in and of itself. And there you go. That's part one of my two-part interview with Chip Zion. Next week, we get into a fascinating story of working with Mike Nichols. Also, did you know that Chip was the voice of Howard the Duck, one of the, if not the biggest movie bombs ever? And he essentially was the quote-unquote star of it. He's got some great stories about that and working with George Lucas. That's part two coming up next week. As always, our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, to John Wolfert, to Bruce and Jason Miller. I am available should you wish to write me. My email address is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I'm on Twitter at Ken Levine, also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Please get your vaccine if you haven't already. Part two of Chip Zion next week right here. Thanks for listening. Hollywood and Levine.